Do you guys realize how early Easter comes this year? Yeah, it's like it's like the end of March. Well, March is like two days from now, but I just first of all, this year is just going by like crazy. So end of March. So that's Easter. We'll do a Saturday night and three on Sunday. Uh, we're also going to do a Good Friday service. That's the Friday before Easter. So just keep counting backwards. You're gonna you'll hit it. And we're going to do something a little different. Well, let's say I don't know why I say that. Every year, Good Friday is different. Uh, but this year is going to be different than anything. I, and that's true for every time I say it too. So, so we have a Good Friday service. It's going to be between like five thirty and nine thirty on that Friday. And really, you just come anytime in there, and you will have something to do. Again, as I tell you about Good Friday services, these are not the services if you're like, oh, I got a friend and they don't know who Jesus is, don't bring them to Good Friday, okay? It's like, this will be great. Oh no, what did I do? Like, like last year, I mean, yeah, so that will go down in infamy last year. Uh, our... our uh, plans going to the planning commission. It got postponed from last week to this week. So d- don't show up, by the way. But just kind of pray about that. Keep that in your prayers. Uh, next baptisms are April 17th. If you would like to be baptized, we'll have a baptism class next Sunday after all the services. If you're over 12 years old, good. Okay. That's all of you, by the way. No. <sighs> Yeah, well, you could bring them if you wanted to, because they're so far above, you know. <laughs> uh, so next week, baptism classes after all three services, and next Saturday is also the rummage sale in our parking lot to help raise funds for the team going to Kenya, if you'd like to come and check that out. Once you stay out and you're reading God's Word, we'll get started. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 44, and it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to be a people. Uh, who live with generous hearts, understanding that we love and serve a God who has first given to us and first blessed us and first loved us, and that we in turn would live lives that show that same generosity out to others because of what you have first done in us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through a series through the first half of the book of Acts. The first half of the book of Acts deals mainly with how the gospel related to a Jewish people in a Jewish way. And sometimes we have a tendency to look at those words and try and reinterpret them in a way that makes the scriptures more palatable to you and me, uh, rather than what the words actually mean. So as we walk through the pages of scripture, we've got to see what Jesus calls the church to be, what he calls the church to become. Uh, Many of you will not live the rest of your life in Santa Maria. Don't be really excited about that, by the way. Uh, I thought I didn't want to live here the rest of my life, and then I got married and moved to Iowa. It was 40 below with the wind chill. The day we moved into the house we did there, it was totally miserable, humid in the summer. Uh, It's not like the, the four seasons are like snow, rain, humidity, rain, snow. That's that's the four seasons that they have there. So my wife and I moved to Arizona. It was nicer, but we lived in a place that didn't have any trees. It was just rocks and shrubs. And I know it sounds more like hell than Iowa, but Iowa was much closer to hell, by the way, just, just so you know that. Uh, and it just kind of takes some experiences because we moved back to Santa Maria and we love it here. We never really want to leave here. We totally like it. So kind of you move away, you grow up a little bit and come back. But for some of you, you will not be living here past 
this year. And so when you move somewhere else, what do you look for in a church when you go someplace? That's part of the reason why we're doing the book of Acts. Uh, Not all churches will do everything well. Uh, I will tell you, we don't do everything we're going to talk about well. So don't just walk in and look for the perfect church to attend, because as soon as you step into that perfect church, it will no longer be a perfect church because you're part of it. We need to be a people who help the church become what it needs to be. Churches are full of messed up people that do messed up things. Sometimes people in churches say, I can't believe that person said that, or I can't believe that person did that. What do you expect them to do? They're people. They're messed up. They're just like you. And we have to understand that. So when you come into a church, our job is kind of help the church become what it needs to be. Uh, surrendering our lives and ourselves to who Jesus calls us to be in our life, and then begin to work that out in the rest of it. And I'll also say this. You'll come into some churches. Don't be divisive. Some churches have a different philosophical vision than you, and if that's true, find another church that kind of lines up with your philosophical vision. Again, they don't have to be just like you. feels like I'm solving some of the elements problems here today from up front, but... Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Today we hit this thing, we're going to talk about generosity. And whenever I start like this, people go, you're after my wallet. Not really. Maybe a little, but, you know, not not really. Uh, We are to be a people who are about generosity because our hearts change in light of what God has done in and through us. So I'm going to deal with something up front right here because in in the culture we live in today, some people misinterpret God's words. And when people hear the first verse we started with, all who believe were together in all things in common, some people say, aha, communism. The Bible teaches communism. And some people are scared of it, and some people think they're really excited about it, just like it hasn't been done right in the history of the world, where every person under communism ends up being crushed by poverty and totalitarian regimes. And people think, oh, we could just do it better, though. If we did it better, well, then it would all work. You can't do it better. It doesn't work. To Jews, these words have nothing to do with communism and everything to do with generosity. All things in common, it does mean their possessions, but it doesn't mean it was in one big pot and you got to take whatever you wanted. Communism denies private property ownership. The government owns your land, your house, your car, your stuff, not your community. Does the Bible teach private property ownership? Yes. One person like had the guts to say it. Yes, the Bible teaches private property ownership. How about the Big Ten? Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. Hmm, implies somebody owns something, and it's not yours, so don't go and take it. God says, uh, Psalm 50, verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Sounds like God's pretty into his own private property ownership. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Seems like that's a big deal to God. As a matter of fact, when the Israelite people go into the promised land, every single family got a plot of land that was theirs. They got to work it. And if you ran into dire straits, you were able to sell that piece of land. And yet every 50 years, it would go back to the family from whence it came because they had the idea of private property ownership. And this means you cannot show up to my house and say, give me the keys to your truck or let me borrow whatever I want. I say no, because it's not yours to take. It is mine, though, to give if I want to. And I've seen how some of you drive, so the answer is still no. Okay. Now, commentators try and point out the difference of this between what's called a tax and a tithe. A tax is where the government just takes it. Did you, did you agree to it? Nope. <laughs> you didn't. Right? They show up and they just take it. Do you get to negotiate? 
No, not unless you want to do like prison ministry from the inside because they take their money very seriously. The government shows up and they says, hey, that's ours. The church does not have a tax for you that you have to pay. It doesn't belong to us. So some people call this tithing. We're going to call this generosity today. But it all is about living in generous giving. The reason the government doesn't do what the church does, like have offering boxes, is because no one would give. Because we all hate the government. The government will never say, hey, just pray and give how you feel led. We'd say, sweet, stick it. Right? Because we wouldn't give them anything. So when we talk about money, we have to be clear we're not really talking about money. What we're talking about is America's God and the thing that has latched so strongly onto our hearts. So the Bible is not about communism or socialism or even capitalism. The Bible is about Godism, being a people centered on him and what he calls us to. This means that we are meant to be a generous people and that generosity should define us as a people. We should be known by it. It's kind of why I love Christmas, because people at Christmas just tend to want to give to one another. That should be our lives all the time. So in context of what we're looking at, Acts 2.42 to verse 47, we're gonna, I'm going to read all of this to you. Acts 2.42 comes after verse 41, because one, numbers work like that. But, but two, this is Peter's sermon. He has just uh, preached. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus in one day. So it's a great sermon, great movement of God's Spirit. But this is a leadership nightmare. 3,000, you go 120 people to 3,120 people. What are you going to do? This is what they do, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's important to understand, in this culture, the tax rate at this point is 80 to 90%. So you have a lot of people who are starving, they can't make it, so they're selling their things to make sure everybody else has enough food to eat. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there's lots of things happening in this early church, but they navigated first and foremost, by imitating one of God's main character traits other than love, which is generosity. And if you've been around the Bible or churches for a long time, you know this is a passage a lot of churches like to go to how to organize the church. It's about eating, which we all love, right? This is America. We made the buffet, right? So we, we call this fellowship, okay? So we have a nice name for it, but fellowship. Prayer, which is communion with God, um, You have other things like miracles and selling things and helping others and meeting together. The word favor there, favor with all the people, it has this connotation of jumping for joy. So they have this leadership nightmare with all of these people, and yet everyone's being fed spiritually and physically in a way that their joy is profound, mainly because their focus is not on themselves. Their focus is on Jesus. It's about a passage about all kinds of people being saved, coming to faith every single day. All these first Christians are so clear on what we are so fuzzy about today, and that is Jesus is Lord. And for them, Jesus Lord meant real-world implications in how they lived their lives and how they viewed their stuff. Jesus dying on the cross, the resurrection, translated into how eventually they even saw their things. And ownership meant something new to them because everyone was selling stuff so other people can have needs met. So I'm going to take a couple minutes and just talk about ownership a little bit to get your minds around this. Uh, Back in 2011, Subway, eat fresh, right? Subway, eat fresh, decided it was going to trademark a word. Anybody know what the word was? 
You ever heard this? Foot long. Foot long. Okay, so they're going to do this. And so they wanted to own this word so nobody else could use it, which led to all these debates in the, in the courts. Can you actually own a unit of measurement? Like, what would we then call something that was a foot long if we couldn't say foot long? Like, that's subway size. I mean, what, what would we call it? I mean, if you could only apply it to a sandwich, what are you going to do? Go to the metric system? God forbid we go to the metric system. I remember that when, I, when I was younger, like a kid, I remember them going to, like, leaders for gas for a while. No one knew how to fill up their car. Like, what does this mean? Never mind. Okay, anyway. Think about this. Uh, you go back a couple thousand years, you, you have uh, the Native Americans in, in America. They have an idea of what is their territories, like territories here, that's your territory, this is ours. But they didn't really understand private property ownership. You fast forward a couple thousand years in America, and now we're trying to own words. There's a whole system today called intellectual property, which is all about owning ideas. And so if you own a house, you have private property. But now there's the debates of how high that actually extends above your property. Like how far into the airspace do you own? Or how far below your property do you own? How deep does it go? What are the mineral rights like? How far down can you go in that? And so we have all these debates going back and forth about what that means. We're on an interesting journey today on what you can own and not own. Lawyers and corporations, they are always asking, what can I own? Can I own a system of measurement? 2014, uh, the courts finally said, Subway, no, you can't own foot long. And they're like, dang it. Right? Now, in Acts 2, these people confessing Jesus as Lord, it connected them with an ancient understanding of ownership. Again, the verse I read earlier, Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is subways. No, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The word Lord there is the word Yahweh. That is the personal name that God gives himself in the Old Testament. The God who always was, always will be, always simply is. The world is Yahweh's house. So the Hebrews had this idea that there was stuff that we own, but it took place in the larger context that God God owned everything. And this is where you get the concept of stewardship. We own things in the larger context of God owning everything because there's our ownership and then there is simply ownership. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's in the Old Testament. I believe you can find it. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 8. In the Hebrew mindset, you would have an awareness that whatever you had, whatever was in your possession, you cared for it and shared it and gave it in the larger context of God's ownership of everything. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's not just the idea of ownership within ownership, but the ability and even the potential. Deuteronomy 8 verses 17 and 18 says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. It says, don't be confused about ownership. God gave you the ability to produce. It's not just that you have this stuff. There's an infinitely larger context to it. You want to talk about intellectual property rights? God made your brain. That's who owns intellectual property. One commentator likens this whole idea to an egg. If, you, if you're strong enough and you squeeze an egg, you can break that egg in your hand. But if you don't hold it hard enough, it's going to slip out and break on the floor. And so if you have a child, you've got to teach them how to hold an egg correctly. This is the idea of stuff, that God allows his children to steward his stuff. He's teaching us how to properly hold it. 
Have you ever had or owned something that took up so much energy and time and anxiety and headspace that eventually you realize it owned you? Maybe you bought a house that was too expensive and that payment was always over your head. Or you bought a car that was too expensive and that payment is just always over your head. And then one day, maybe the repo man comes and takes it or your house gets foreclosed and it's a, and it's a nightmare. But on the other side of it, you realize at the end that all of a sudden all that pressure is gone and you actually begin to feel relief. Possessions and money held too tightly will break and get all over everything just like broken eggs. In Acts, the gospel is being understood in new ways. Jesus is Lord. God is putting the world right again. The tomb is empty. You can have a restored relationship with God. There is something transformative in the gospel that enabled these first Christians, the first church, to hold their money and stuff in new ways, and it directly connected them with their confession about Jesus. People were selling stuff, making sure everybody had their needs met. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus connects us with our hearts. And I've talked about this a few times before, but the scripture never relates money as either being good or bad. Uh, we talk about it as being good or bad, but the scripture never says money is either good or bad. It's just a thing that's meant to be used. And so some people are in poverty because of tough circumstances, and they refuse to lie and cheat and get ahead. Some people are in poverty because they won't work, they're lazy, they do drugs, they're unambitious. And so when Jesus uh, teaches and warns about money and things, it usually centers on greedy hearts, on greedy hearts, people who have but refuse to give. Somebody who was greedy and always wanted more in this culture was was talked about as having a bad eye or an evil eye. You know, you always look how to get more and take more at the expense of other people. In the ancient world, generosity, on the other hand, wasn't only one area dimension of your life. It was your entire life. You're generous in everything or nothing. And so a generous person in this culture was said to have a good eye. So do you have a good eye or a bad eye towards certain things? And so Jesus uses this popular metaphor in Matthew 6, 22 to 24. I'm going to read it to you out of the NIV. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so it looks at your entire self. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If you're generous, it will affect your entire life. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Again, it affects your entire life. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Why? Because everything is spiritual. God and your stuff both connects. Jesus stresses this because the next section of scripture he talks about in Matthew 6 is all about possessions and things. It all relates to learning how to be content. Does your eye wander to what everyone else has? Are you never content with what you have been given? Have you ever gotten a Christmas present and then gone to a friend's house and thought, oh, I wish I got that instead? No matter what you get, the bad eye is such that it always wants something more. A good eye, it is generous in everything because it has infused the whole body. A generous posture in every single part of our lives. And it doesn't make sense scripturally when you read it in the Bible to split things up and say, oh, I'm generous here, but I'm not generous there. Jesus won't split it up like that. And it stems from the belief that God has been generous with us and that our ownership of our things takes place in the larger framework for God's ownership of everything, even our ability to produce and work. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. Jesus brings us up again in how we see the world. Uh, If we think that we are entitled, that others are out to get us, that we have been shafted or shortchanged in any way, if we think we deserve more, it's going to come out in how we live our lives and how we interact with God and others. If we think, you know, God's given somebody else more than us, we're going to start to compare with them. It comes out of a view that doesn't truly see God as he is, good, sovereign, and righteous. Now, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a story about a master of a house, and he goes out to hire these day laborers 
for a day. He agrees upon a wage with all of them. He does this in the beginning of the day, then like at noon and 3 and 5 p.m. And at the end of the day, he pays everybody the same wage. Why? It's because that's what they all agreed on. It's what they agreed on. And some of these people grumble because they think they worked harder and longer and they deserve more. And the master of the house, who represents God, says this in the parable, Matthew 20, verse 15. He says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So what's the answer? The answer is, of course we begrudge God's generosity. Because we always want more. Because God hasn't given us enough. When we cannot celebrate the blessing and the benefit that God has given to somebody else, it goes to the core belief of who we are and what we feel about God. Do you believe God has shafted you? Do you believe God has shortchanged you? That sort of envy will destroy you. It will destroy you and your relationship with others and make you miserable. Your relationship with God is going to tank. When we are unable to celebrate the good that God has done for somebody else, our body and our light is not full of light. It affects our entire being. Uh, Last January, January 2015, we did four weeks on the story of the prodigal son. This whole story is kind of about this. The, the younger son goes to his dad, gets his inheritance, runs off, squanders everything. And eventually he's starving, says, I'll return home and just be a hired hand in my dad's house. So he goes back and the father sees his son and runs and embraces him and loves him and restores him to family. But there's also an older brother. And the older brother is angry. He cannot take part in the celebration. He refuses to enter into the father's joy. He says, why would my dad throw a party for that guy? Why would my dad forgive my stupid brother? And what does the dad do? The dad goes out to the older brother who had left the father just as much as the younger brother did, even by staying at home, and tries to bring him back in and says, I love you. Come back into my goodness and my grace. Jesus, throughout the scriptures, pushes and pushes and pushes. How is your eye? Can you celebrate with others when they're forgiven, blessed, experience abundance, more than you think you have? Do you stand at a distance of others, and are you jealous of them? Do you have a bad eye or a good eye? And rabbis are always teaching from what's known as the wisdom literature, and much of it is seen in how we view our money and our stuff and how it works in God's larger framework. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. The generous are the ones who seem to be taken care of. That's wisdom literature. Proverbs 21, verse 25 and 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves. But the righteous gives and does not hold back. It means they give without sparing. Like, you want to be what's right with God, whatever that is. You know, you live in harmony with your creator. That means you learn to give because God is a giving God. Proverbs 22, verse 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. Again, that's generous, for he shares his bread with the poor. Over and over and over, the scriptures keep coming back to this idea. Guys, I know wealthy people who are stingy, and I know poor people who are incredibly stingy. I know rich people who are very generous and poor people who are also incredibly generous. Wealth and poverty, generous and stingy, these are two different things. It's about a posture of learning to live in the world that is independent from our stuff. Our whole lives are rested in the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's our lives being oriented not around our stuff, but around Jesus, just like this early church in Acts 2. In Acts, they have this common confession. That common confession centers on repentance and reconciliation, and it affects how they interacted with each other. 
And I know I spend a ton of time on generosity, and there's a lot of things in Acts chapter 2. It talks more than about money. But let me just sum it up for you real quick, and then we'll bring it all back together. Because in Acts here, they've done different things. First off, 3,000 people come into faith, and then there is baptism. They get baptized. Baptism means immersion or submersion. It means underwater. Anybody baptized them as an infant? Wow. No, you weren't. Okay, you were sprinkled by well-meaning parents. Okay, that's that's what happened as as an infant. Uh, the the word baptized when you that's a lot of you. The word baptized it actually used it was used for a ship that sank. It went under the water. Most ships can survive the rain. Okay, most ships cannot survive being submerged and going to the bottom. We do not baptize infants in element for three reasons. One, it's not in the Bible. Two, they can't make a decision to commit. And three, it's child abuse. You brought your kid a nice little bow in their hair out to the pool. And we're like, oh, let's baptize. And I threw him under the water. You'd be like, ah! And you rightly should. Okay? You're going to kill him. No. Baptism is the outward showing of the burial and resurrection of Jesus as it's understood in our life. Have you been baptized? If not, again, we have one coming up. It's going to be amazing. You're all welcome. We'll put you under the water. And by the grace of God, we'll bring you out again. You're welcome. It's a great big party where we share our stories, and it's just simply amazing. If you want to read any of the old stories, you can get those on our website. What they also did is they had gospel-centered community. Uh, in Acts 2.46, you see this. They gather corporately together and in individual homes, just like we should. They had large gatherings together like this, and they met in homes together, where they shared food, and they grew together, and they prayed for one another, and they discipled one another, and they lifted up Jesus. Some people think real church is only in a room like this. Some people think real church is only in a small room together. It's both together. And what's interesting to me, people say, oh, we need to do big church like the, like the Bible did. Do you realize in the temple there were no chairs? You had to stand the entire time. Anybody want to go to that? No, exactly, exactly. So the, the question is, you know, are you only joining us for large gatherings? Are you only joining us for small gatherings? If you're listening to the podcast or watching the video, do you only watch online? And It's both. It's both these things coming together. We believe both these things make a biblical church together. So we have to understand that uh, you know, we believe you need to be involved in a gospel community and involved in corporate worship together, both of those things. Uh, I mean, seriously, if you look around and you see somebody you, you like, like, not like, oh, I don't like it, but see somebody you like, go, hey, are you in a gospel community? Can I come? There you go. Look how easy that was. I solved your problem. Uh, next thing you're involved in is fellowship. Uh, fellowship, joining together, welcoming believers into each other's homes. Uh, sometimes this means when you're in each other's homes, you will drive each other nuts. Uh, you see the early church did this a lot. They drove each other crazy because no one's perfect. Uh, you and I, we have all of our own stuff to work on. And God's people can and do fight, but we are meant to fight like family. And no matter what happens, we are family. They're also involved in hospitality. This is welcoming strangers who don't know what they believe or don't believe at all into our homes so that they can experience the full church life in tangible ways. Uh, you know, this is always with an eye first upon Jesus and the necessity of loving others. Again, 3,000 people added in one day. And prayer, this is prayer with and for each other. Prayer enables us to have intimacy with God. And when we pray for one another, it enables intimacy with one another. Uh, it's prayer is for the helpless and those who 
don't understand their condition and those who do understand their condition. Prayer resets us. It begins to give us perspective on who God is and who we are. And we'll flesh this out in a later message through the book of Acts. But it's always the centrality of calling on Jesus as Savior. But, 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 all of these things come out in understanding of who Jesus is and it comes together in generosity. That's why we spent so much time on it. And in eyes that saw the world in new ways that define them. And I, sometimes... People will get together at my house, okay? We'll get together and we'll hang out, not just baptisms, but a bunch of friends will come over. Like at the Super Bowl, we were going to have like just six people, including my wife and I, get together and that was it. In the end, it was like 25 people and kids. I don't know how that happens, but but it does. And my wife and I invariably have this conversation that goes like this. It goes, who's all coming? You know, how many people's going to be here? Who's bringing what? Well, we have enough. We better go back to the store. And so we're always going back to start. We don't do this because we think our friends are losers and they're not going to bring enough, usually. Um, we do it because, because we, don't, we don't want anybody to leave hungry. And it's not that we're rich. It's just the way it's done in our house. We want everyone to feel like there was enough. And usually with my friends, there's too much. And we all go to bed going, oh, I ate too much. This is not going to be pretty tomorrow. <laughs> right? And we start thinking like that. The understanding of Acts 2.42 to 47 is that the earth is God's house. And how is it meant to be done in God's house? Well, there's generosity and justice and worship and prayer and fellowship because Jesus is the hope of the world. And if I, in my frail humanity, can have a house that wants everyone's hunger needs met, how much more should God's call to see the whole world have their needs met mean? In America, we are a country, we are all about our rights. But God also wants us to be a people of responsibility and generosity. The passage in Acts is what it means for God's people to flourish in the world. I think this is a very religious passage as well as a very practical passage. And we have to ask questions in this. When we understand the gospel, it changed them. You have to ask, has it changed you? Has the gospel reinterpreted how you see the entire world? How do you give? How are you generous? See, Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus wants to save the rich and the poor. He wants to save the rich who have so much it destroys them. He wants to save the poor who refuse to work and the poor who want to work and they just have a rumble in their belly and they can't find a job. It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is salvation from starvation and their sins both. It's both. And we can't make it too small because God wants to make it much bigger than us. We understand that the gospel is God making all things new, even us. God is going to redeem the entire world. But part of the way he does that is by redeeming and saving and changing us. And he makes us his hands and feet to go out into the world to spread this love because we live in his name because he has made us new. This is the understanding of how the gospel changes all of us. That we are no longer the same. We are different, and we view everything in our lives first through the lens of the grace of Jesus that has saved us. That's where it starts. That's where it ends, the grace of Jesus who saved us, and it goes out from there. This is why we come to communion every single week. Communion is the place where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of God's blood that was shed for you and me. Because he has come to rescue and redeem us. Our God is generous enough to send his son to pay the penalty for the sins that we commit so he would restore right and true relationship with us again. That's communion. That's communion. And you realize that Jesus rose from the dead to bring us to new life so we have a new relationship with God again and it changes how we see everything 
in our lives. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you about that. I mean, maybe you're in a place where you don't understand generosity. Now you do, and you don't know what to do with it. They'd love to pray with you about that. Uh, or they might really be really awkward when you start talking about money because nobody likes to talk about money. <laughs> Except for me, apparently, right? Um, you know, and if you have any prayer requests, they'd love to pray with you about those as well. Uh, and, and speaking of which, there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is in part of our worship. It's one of the reasons why we talk about it every single week at the end of the message. It's a response to what God has done in us. And part of our worship is how we actually give. There's food in, in the back. Grab something to eat. Uh, someone has some Twizzlers back there, some strawberry Twizzlers. So I guess that's breakfast food since it's strawberry. Grab something to eat, meet some other people, and then maybe, you know, grab some sermon notes and this week start talking with some other people about this. What does it mean to really be generous? What does it mean to to see everything in our lives differently because of how the gospel has changed us, what God has done and what God continues to do? You know, begin to go a little bit deeper in one another's lives. And I got to tell you, sometimes it's really hard when you start to do this and you talk about generosity and money because nobody likes to talk about money. I like to talk about how much we don't have. But we don't like to talk about, you know, the actual giving of it. So, you know, maybe sit down with some friends that you trust and kind of talk through some of those things. Our God, you have to understand, has been generous to us. He has given us much more than we will ever comprehend this side of heaven. And we need to be people who live also in that great generosity. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to see the world the way that you do. To live in ways that are always pointing back to you and the goodness of who you are. I ask that you would move our hearts to begin to understand the great generosity that you have given to us. That we in turn become a people who give much because much has been given to us. that in all the ways in our lives that we feel we have been shortchanged, maybe that we haven't been given as much as we think we should have been given, we can take a step back and realize we've been given much more than we ever expected. That no matter the circumstance in our lives, we are rich because of your grace, because of your hope given to us. Move us to be a people who live in the great grace of your generosity. And that we would see our ownership in the context of your larger ownership of everything. And that everything isn't just our stuff, that everything includes us, our lives, our hearts, our souls. And we would honor you by how we in turn become a generous people. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.